Well, we're going to get into the crucifixion of Jesus in just a moment, but I want to let you know a couple of things that are going to be taking place. As was already stated, next Sunday morning, 10 a.m., we're going to be live streaming our Easter service. Obviously, the majority of folks, except for a handful of us that are putting on the presentation and getting all the, the technology there, all of you are going to be at home. And oh my goodness, does that hurt. I love to be with you. So we're really, really going to miss you next week. So uh, our heartfelt we love you. We wish you would be here, uh, but obviously that's going to be a bit of a challenge over the next several weeks until we know exactly what's going to happen. So next week, uh, 10 a.m., please join us for our Easter service. Tell some folks, share some of our videos, let people know we're out here, and let's have a gigantic Easter service around our area, around Union Grove, around Milwaukee, Racine, Kenosha. Hey, how about the whole country? Let's get them to join on in at My Union Grove Baptist. So go to our Facebook, and we'll enjoy that together. Now, here's one thing I want to announce before we get into the message tonight. April 5th again, Resurrection Sunday. Now, what's the big issue, folks? What's the, if you will, the elephant in the room going around right now, which is, of course, the coronavirus? Many people, and I've been watching Facebook, I've been watching YouTube, I've been watching news feeds, and many, many people are extremely concerned about what's taking place. There's a lot of fear going on. Some people, even uh, some of my uh, friends that are prophecy teachers and so forth, I'm seeing some things that are a little disturbing, like, well, is this the end of the world? Are we in, are in the last stages? Is Armageddon here? All these different things are coming out from uh, different groups. Now, folks, that's why I've decided April 12th, the first service, Sunday morning, I'm going to address the subject of the coronavirus. Is this the end a biblical look at the pandemic. So we're going to literally go into it. So I'm not going to do sensationalizing. I'm not going to allegorize. I'm not going to spiritualize the scriptures. We're going to look at a biblical take, exactly what's taking place, how it does or doesn't fit into Bible prophecy, and quite frankly, God's prophetic timeline. So you don't want to miss that. Let me tell you this. I'll give you a two-week ahead, just a snippet of what's coming. Folks, this is not, N-O-T with all capitals, the end of the world. This is not Armageddon. It's a huge issue right now across the country. It's a huge issue right here at home. But folks, this is not the end. So I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to look at some of the things that are taking place. We're going to look at uh, uh, some of the things that literally from a current events perspective. But the big issue is I want to look at it from a very strict biblical standpoint how does this fit in, if at all, to God's prophetic calendar? What should we be learning from it and what we're going to be learning into the future? So you don't want to miss that. Again, that'll be in two weeks in the 9 a.m. service. All right, now, before we actually get into the message, this is a very important week for the Jewish people as well as for us as Christians. This Wednesday, the Jewish people will be celebrating Passover. Now, it doesn't happen in the same calendar days as uh, we would look at from, if you will, our current calendar. So Wednesday is actually Passover for our Jewish people. So friends, if you're out there today and you're one of my Jewish friends, Hak Sameach to you, which uh, in normal uh, uh, English is basically have a great holiday season. So Hak Sameach to you. Now, what does that mean to us? 
Here's what it means. There are multiple festivals, multiple feasts that are in the Bible and all refer to the things which are going on and basically that we're going to be looking at tonight. There are seven major feasts in the Old Testament. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 3, which I'm not going to do tonight, but I'm going to tell you where it's located, it goes through these seven Jewish feasts. This is extremely important because what we're looking at right now is Jesus is going to be crucified on Passover. That's extremely important. Here's why. Here's the first four feasts which all happen in the spring right now. The first feast is Passover. The second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're actually pushed together, if you will. Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here's what's taking place. This is amazing because the, the, the issue of Leviticus chapter 23, it began 1400 B.C. is when that was written. 1400 B.C. So what else do we know? The first feast again, Passover. The second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus was buried. What's the third feast from Leviticus chapter 23? Well, the third feast is this. It is the Feast of First Fruits from Leviticus 23. Three days later. Do you know what that's telling us? It's telling us this. Jesus was crucified on Passover, spoken about 1,400 years before it happened. He was buried on unleavened bread, and he was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. Again, talked about 1,400 years before it actually happened in the scriptures. Do you remember what happened 50 days later after the resurrection? Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Well, it was the arrival, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, and we're getting into those beginning stages of when the church age would begin. In other words, Jesus fulfilled those first four feasts in the exact same day order that was spoken about 1,400 years earlier. Do You see, folks, everything in the Old Testament basically fits in hand and glove perfectly with the New Testament. Well, I said there were seven feasts. That means there's three left in Leviticus 23 that, if you will, Jesus is not yet fulfilled. Those are going to take place in the fall. What are those three feasts? The first feast, of course, is the Feast of Trumpets. It's known in Hebrew as Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Here's what we can say, and we've got a pretty good, if you will, record that Jesus is going to fulfill the fall feast the same way he fulfilled the spring feast. Rosh Hashanah, the feast of trumpets, when Jesus Christ will come back to this earth. Not at the rapture, taking the church home, but at the second coming. This is Jewish. The second feast is called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, also found in Leviticus 23. Ten days After the Feast of Trumpets, when Jesus returns, what's going to happen 10 days later? Jesus will be setting up, preparing to inaugurate his 1,000-year millennial kingdom, Revelation 21-7. to 
It tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that there will be the judgment of the nations and the judgment of the Jewish people that will take place to determine who will enter into his kingdom on earth, those people that managed to survive and live to that time. Isn't that amazing? The third feast is what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkah. Sukkah. That is when Jesus will literally inaugurate his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So why am I bringing that up tonight? Because everything that Jesus is doing, he's following the Jewish calendar. He's following the Jewish law. Everything he's doing has to fit hand in glove with what he put in those first 39 books of the Old Testament. And folks, it is absolutely perfect. Keeping that in mind, this morning we started our discussion on the Passion Week of Jesus after the triumphal entry, after he dealt with the uh, Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and I want to pick up tonight with the crucifixion of Jesus. We touched on this a little bit this morning about Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to expand a little bit on that before we actually go to the crucifixion scene. Again, if you're looking on the screen, you'll see there's three major passages in the Gospels, each author looking at it from a slightly different perspective. They're what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They give a synopsis from their own perspective. Now, of course, this is all 100% inspired by God. It isn't their opinion. It's what God basically instructed them, if you will, to read. Every single verse in the Bible is inspired by God, literally meaning God breathes, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. So let's go to the garden. We come out of the temple. You go down into the Kidron Valley, and right at the base of the Mount of Olives, less than a 15-minute walk, is the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been there many times. Some of you have been there. And it's a very special spot because that's where Jesus went through what we're going to read right now. You can look on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, I put in there what the word means. It means olive press. It means uh, olive, it's, it's an olive grove right there. In fact, there's trees there that are a thousand years old. They're still standing. They take the olives off, and man, what do you do to get that olive? You squish them, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to be going through. He's going to be, if you will, going through the press of suffering. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. So Jesus walks a few feet away, probably. It's not that big of a garden. He walks away. He falls down and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Folks, I want us to get in, get in the mindset right now of what our Lord Jesus was going through. Now, we know that Jesus is the, if you will, the God-man. He is all God and he is all human. How that happens, folks, that's why we're humans. It's hard for us to understand. But even though he was God, he took on the human flesh. And had human flesh, had human feelings just like me and you. When you're distressed, when you're hurting, this is a perfect example that Jesus understands where you are because he's been there, done that, if you will. 
He began to be sorrowful. He's deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Folks, he is in the epitome, if you will, of absolute agony with what he knows is coming. Have you ever been so scared, so upset, that you just didn't, I mean, it was just overwhelming. Some of you right now are at that state. I've talked to people this week that have been so distressed, so concerned, so upset about what's taking place in our country. They're so upset about their finances that they can barely handle life right now. They're so scared and just don't know where to turn. I've had people that are so upset about the coronavirus, worried about their loved ones. Are they going to die? And the distress is just earth-shattering for these dear folks. And maybe that's you this evening. And Jesus said, my soul, oh my gosh, I am so exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Guys, please, would, would you please, would you stay here? Can you watch with me? He walks a little farther and he falls on his pray, face and he prays saying, Oh, my Father, dear Father, my Heavenly Father, if it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Can you imagine Every single one of you listening has a father. Can you imagine being so distressed that you come up to your dad? And if he's passed away at this time, my condolences, I'm sorry. But think about if you came up to your dad and said, Dad, I can't go through with this, whatever it might have been. I can't handle it. I can't go through with this. Please, Dad, please don't. Don't make me go through this horrific thing. Can you please, is there a way you can help me? Is there a way you can prevent me from having to go through this horrible circumstance? But dad, if this is what I got to do, if this is what you think is the right thing to do, I guess I'll do it. I don't want to, but I'll do it. Then he came to the disciples, verse 40, and he found them asleep, and he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus is saying he's in the distress. He's just about beside himself. He asks his best friends, come on, guys, please, I need your support right now. And he comes and finds them sleeping. In verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. Oh, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, and he prays the exact same thing. He is still beside himself in agony. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. Oh, I don't want to drink this cup, dear God. I don't want to drink it, father. But your will be done. He walks away in deep agony. He's still in horrific distress. And he comes and it says in verse 43, And Jesus came. He found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. Folks, it's late at night. They're tired. They're weary. Many of you, Sunday afternoons, you'll take a nap because you've just come to the end of your rope and it's time to get a little relaxation. Folks, it's, it's late at night. It's, it's late. And the people 
are weary, but Jesus can't sleep. He's in agony, and he's asking for his best friends, please help me. In verse 44, so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Oh, Father, please, if there's any way we can accomplish this, if there's any way we can get the sins of mankind paid for without me having to go to the cross, without having me to go through the horrific suffering that I'm about to go through, if there's any way, Father, that I can please, I don't want the, your wrath to come down upon me while I'm on that cross as I take all the sins of mankind upon my back. Father, please. And he's pleading with his father. Folks, this is exactly what happened. Jesus, God's son, is facing absolute agony. And he's in deep distress to the point of almost dying. Nevertheless, not my will. Okay, Father, if that's the way it's got to be. Then he came to his disciples and has said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer. Oh my goodness, we worked on that word a little this morning. My betrayer. Can you imagine? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had a friend whom you loved dearly, or maybe a loved one, a parent, a relative, and all of a sudden, man, you felt the sting of being stabbed in the back by your friend, by your loved one, and it hurt so bad, and you were betrayed, and you felt that horrible betrayal, and Jesus, who had walked and talked and eaten and taught with Judas Iscariot. He was his friend. Yet the Bible tells us that Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered into Judas. In other words, Judas became literally satanically, demonically uh, 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 possessed and betrayed Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh my goodness. Folks, you say, I've been betrayed. I have people in my life that have betrayed me. They've treated me improperly and I'm just having a horrible time with that person and I don't know if I can ever forgive them. Jesus knows where you're at. Jesus felt the sting of betrayal that would cost him his life. And when we come to the cross in just a moment, we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus. And the first saying he talks about is, Father, would you please forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Jesus has been there, and yet he had a forgiving spirit. Well, we look at Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we look at Jesus being betrayed and arrested. Judas comes up to Jesus with a great throng of people, comes up to him and takes one of the most intimate things you can do with someone else. He walks up to him as a sign to those who are there in the dark. He said, the person whom I kiss, that will be Jesus. And Jesus, Judas walks up to Jesus and he puts a kiss on him. But it's the kiss of death, not the kiss of love. 
and he betrays God's son. He betrays his friend with a kiss. This morning, and we're not going to review these, but we went through what happened between the time that Judas betrayed Jesus when he was arrested, and then six illegal, horrific hearings and trials that took place. You can hear that if you go to our website. You can listen to the message if you missed it. He walks before Annas, the high priest. Annas, who was uh, basically the one who was the most corrupt religious leader in Jerusalem, but yet he had the most power. He goes before Annas. He goes before Caiaphas, who was the high priest. He goes before the 70 members of the Sanhedrin council. They condemn him falsely for to death. But they had no right to kill him. So they, they, they take him. At the break of dawn, they go to Pilate. Pilate, being the Roman governor, had the right to kill Jesus. He had the authority. So he goes before Pilate. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Ah, perfect. Hey, where's Jesus from? Oh, he's a Galilean. Oh, perfect. Herod is right up, up the street in Jerusalem right now. He's visiting from Caesarea. Take him over there. Maybe Herod can figure this out. So they take Jesus. They bind him up once again. They walk him over to Herod's. He goes into Herod's. And Herod says, show me some miracles. Put on a show for me, Jesus. I want to see some of these things people have been saying you can do. And Jesus stood silent. No show today. And Herod was like, this guy's a waste of my time. Get him out of here. Send him back to Pilate. They send him back to Pilate. Pilate goes through several things. He knows that there's a great throng of Jewish people that still got some favor for Jesus. He also knows the religious leaders hate him with a passion. So Pilate tries to wash his hands of this whole thing. He tries to provide ways that the Jewish people can get rid of Jesus without him having to kill him. He says, wait a minute, if you recall, he says, I I'm going to release somebody like I normally do every year at the Passover time. I'm going to release a prisoner, whoever you want. And he threw out two names. He said, how about Barabbas? Hey, or how about Jesus? And the people said, much to his surprise, we don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist. He's a robber. He's a bad Dude, in our, in our lingo, if you will, give us Barabbas. We want nothing to do with Jesus. You keep Jesus. Bible tells us, Pilate goes to talk to Jesus in private. And he said, hey, Jesus, where's your kingdom? Where are you from? He says, my kingdom is another's world. He's like, wait a minute. They call you king of the Jews, but his kingdom is not of this world. That doesn't work for me. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not trying to take the throne. And Pilate is confused. He's like, well, let me try this. And you have to go to a different passage than we went to this morning. Pilate says, I got a good idea. Let's 
scourge him. Let's beat him harshly. Let's rip his back and lower uh, a part of his extremities to shreds. Let's slam a crown of thorns on him and bring him out and show him once again to the people before I pass sentence. Maybe they'll look at him and realize this is a decrepit, almost dead individual who has no authority, no power. He's nothing. And he was hoping the people would embrace that and say, he's had enough punishment, get rid of him, we're done. Didn't happen that way. Instead, the exact opposite happens. Jesus is brought forth, and they get on Pilate. John chapter 19. And they say to Pilate this, and we did rehearse this a little bit this morning, they get on Pilate and they say, listen, Pilate, if you do not do what we are asking, you obviously are a traitor to Caesar, and you don't care about Caesar, and we are Caesar's people. Well, isn't that a churn of events, seeing the Jewish people literally hated the Roman government and were looking for the Messiah to come to deliver them from it? But in this case... We'll make an exception. Get rid of Jesus, Pilate. Pilate basically caves in. He's like, I'm not going to lose my my power in Jerusalem. I'm not going to give up who I am. I'm not going to... Jesus means nothing to me. Go ahead. Take him and do as you see fit. The Jewish people have won the battle. No. No, they haven't. Well, Pilate has, has made his decision. No, he hasn't. Well, Satan is winning the victory because Satan is going to get Jesus on that cross. He's won. No, he hasn't. You say, well, who did win? You did. I did. You say, how, what do you mean we won? You see, my dear friend, In just a moment, we're going to look at seven things that Jesus said while he was on the cross. Do you know how you got, why Jesus went to that cross? It's not because of Satan. It's not because of Pilate. It's not because of Herod or, or Caiaphas or Anus or any of the other Jewish people. Jesus, a thousand years before he came in the book of Isaiah, Chapter 53 said that Jesus Christ had to come and suffer for our sins. You see, everyone else was just doing what God's plan, his sovereign plan, had laid out hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. In fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, within the first three chapters, God said that this event would take place, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the heel of Jesus Christ would be bruised. In other words, he's going to die. He's going to suffer in order to stamp out Satan, and that's coming. Well, let's look exactly at what took place. So Jesus is illegally plotted against by the Sanhedrin, which is what brought him to this position. He goes before Pilate. He goes before Herod. And now the final sentence is there. Condemned to death by the governor, by Pilate. Not only is he condemned to death, he is condemned to the most horrible death known in Roman, if you will, torture deaths, which is crucifixion. 
So what do we pick up? Jesus Christ then has the cross placed upon him. He begins to walk, beat up, bloody, an absolute mess, dragging himself, trying to get to the place where he will literally, he will give his Life. Did you catch the words? His life will not be taken from him. He will give his life. Folks, that's so different. He's going to give his life. You cannot take the life of Jesus. He had to lay it down. He goes to the cross. And while he's on that cross, he utters seven specific things. We have to go to several of the Gospels in order to pull all those together. Now, if you've already looked at my outline, you'll see one set of ways that some of the scholars have put them in order. I'm going to follow a slightly different order tonight if you have the notes. But we want to look at this and see exactly what was taking place after they took our Savior, beat him half to death, put him on the cross, taking the spikes, driving them through his wrists, Some people show it up in in the palm area. You can't put the spike up there. Your hand would rip off. Sorry. So they put it in a place that are going to hold his arms stiff. They're going to take his feet. They're going to put them on top of each other, and they're going to drive another spike through his feet. But they're going to keep his legs at about a 90-degree angle. The Lord Jesus is going to be on the cross. And he's going to be able to, just like anyone being crucified, in order not to suffocate, he's going to be able to slightly push himself up in utter agony, pain, to breathe. Folks, when you start to slump down, your chest cavity will literally cave in to the point where you're going to be suffocated. So part of the horrific torture of crucifixion was you had to constantly push yourself up with spikes in your arms, with spikes in your feet, and try and get enough air so Jesus could speak these seven sayings. It is a horrible scene. It is a violent scene. The reason crucifixion was practiced was not to be funny, was not to be cruel in and of itself, It was to stop those who were violating Roman law and send a message to everyone else. It was capital punishment in the worst way to send a message. Don't you rebel against Caesar. Don't you rebel against the government. And they went to the crucifixion as insurrectionists, as people who failed to follow the Roman law, and they wanted them to suffer as a testimony, as a outreach to people walking by don't violate our law well what did jesus say let's look at those seven last statements taking place between approximately 9 a.m and 3 p.m while he's on the cross the first saying of jesus on the cross luke chapter 23 and verse 34 then jesus said oh my goodness first thing he says father Forgive them. They know not what they do. And oh my goodness, they couldn't have known what they were doing. You just took the Son of Man, beat him, spiked him, put him on a cross where you know he's going to die. 
And if they would have had any inkling that this was the Messiah, of course they wouldn't have done it. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand who Jesus was. My dear friend, do you understand who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? He's not simply a teacher. He's not simply a prophet. He's not simply one who a lot of this book is written about and it's a story. No, it's not in a story. It's an account of what Jesus Christ, God's son, did for you and what he did for me. It's an account of Jesus saying, and he prays on that cross. And by the way, we're going to see two people trust Jesus before he dies from the cross. He is there because it was his mission. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, The Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus had a mission. Jesus knew that his mission was to die on that cross in order that we might have our sins forgiven. And the first thing he prays is, Father, would you please forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Second thing he says, Luke chapter 23, verse 39 As you recall, there were three crosses. And here's the two individuals, and most of you remember this. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, which I highly doubt, save yourself and us. He starts to mock the Savior. Obviously, he had no clue who Jesus was. But the others answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Verse 41, Luke 23. And we indeed justly, what is he recognizing? This person is saying, you know what? I deserve to be on this cross. I'm a sinner. I've broken the law. I deserve punishment. Acknowledgement of our sin. Folks, that's the first step to trusting Christ is acknowledging your sin. This guy's on the right road. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, verse 41. But this man, Jesus Christ, has done nothing wrong. And oh my goodness, now what is he realizing? He realizes, first of all, that he's a sinner. He realizes that Jesus Christ, God's Son, has done absolutely nothing wrong. And he is absolutely right because Jesus is the perfect, sinless Savior. Then he said to Jesus, time to get saved. He said, Lord, I'm going to die here in just a few moments. Would you, would you please, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I'm trusting in you, dear Lord. I believe that oh, when I die. Would you please, I, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. But I believe you're the Son of God, and I'm going to trust in you right this moment. And what did Jesus say? Well, I don't know about that, brother. I think you know, need to go get baptized first. No time. Well, I think you need to take the Lord's Supper, the communion, and the Eucharist in order for you to go to heaven. There's no time. You know, maybe I I should go and take my catechism classes. There's no time. Oh, maybe I should try to be good to people first. There's no time. Jesus said, 
Then he said to Jesus, Lord, would you please, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And here's what Jesus said. Here's this criminal on the cross. Nothing good that he's done. Nothing. He didn't go to Sunday school. He didn't go to church. He didn't do all the sacraments, if you will. He just trusted in Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. Assuredly, I say to you, absolutely, positively, assuredly, unequivocally, I say to you, today, (laughs) today you will be with me in paradise. I'm taking you home, my friend. You've trusted in me. You realize you're a sinner. You realize you don't deserve to go to heaven. You realize you don't deserve paradise, if you will. But I know you trust in me, and you're my child. And yes, I am going to take you with me. Folks, do you understand what he's saying here? Do you Have you ever trusted Jesus? Have you ever accepted the same thing that this robber did? Did you realize you're a sinner? You say, yeah, I, I may not have been a robber, but I know I've done wrong. Do you realize that just like this robber, this corrupt individual, that because we've sinned, Jesus says, if we got what we deserve, just like the other person who got in Jesus' face and said, save yourself and us if you can. He didn't get it. This other guy got it. And he said, I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that's right. And folks, I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner, and Jesus loves you because he went. Look at that cross. That's a nice, clean one. It wasn't clean when Jesus was on it. It was a bloody mess. As he's on that cross, and he's pushing himself up, and all those spurs and spikes on that cross are digging into his skin, further ripping him apart. And yet, while he's up there in absolute agony, barely able to breathe and talk, he tells this gentleman, Today, you, because you've trusted in me alone and nothing else, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Third thing Jesus said, John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother. Oh, I love this. Jesus looks down and from the cross, he sees his mom. Can you imagine being Jesus' mom? Can you imagine, remember way back, 33 years earlier, angels appeared to Mary and to Joseph. And they told them about the virgin birth that Mary would have and bear Jesus. It's very interesting that Mary knew what was going to happen, but now she's visualizing it. She's actually seeing it. Her son, now, ladies, you can relate to this. Fathers, you can relate to this. They're looking up, they're seeing Jesus on the cross, specifically Mary. And Mary looks up at her son, seeing him going through this agony. Can you imagine how your heart would break if that was your child? And that, I'm sure her heart was broken. And Jesus looks down at mom. And he said, oh, my goodness, my poor mom, she's suffering right now. And here's what he said. He said to his mom, his mother, woman, behold your son. But he wasn't pointing at himself. He was talking about John. Now, John was not her son. It was the apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, if you will. Then he said to the disciple, who is John, he looks at him and he said, behold your mom. You know what he was saying? He was saying, John, Mary, I want you guys, I'm not going to be here anymore. Now, of course, he was here for a short time after the resurrection, but he said, John, would you take care of my mom? Mom, make him your son. And that's exactly what 
happen. Why did that happen? Jesus had half-brothers. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, folks, subsequent after the resurrection, they, they would come and they would trust in him. But they didn't at that point. So we don't have time to get real deep into this, but how do you treat mom? Do you love your mom? Do you care about mom? Do you care about dad? Jesus did. He cared so much, he, he looks down. He's dying. He sees mom and he says, John, take care of mom. Take care of her. Would you love her like I would? And he did. For saying, Matthew 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, looking at it from Jewish time, which is noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He's approaching the death point, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wait a minute. What does he mean? This is exactly the plan. This is exactly the thing in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus said, Father, please, don't make me go through this. You know what he was saying? He was not saying, I don't want to feel the scourge on my back. He was not saying, I don't want to feel the nails in my hands and in my feet. What he was saying is this, Father, I know when I'm on that cross, I'm going to take every person's sin ever to have been born, to be born, and you're going to pour your wrath down upon me. Folks, that's exactly what happened. The wrath of God, the absolute agony that Jesus was feeling was Daddy turning his back on his Son, pouring his wrath down upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus looks up in a horrible condition and feels the pain of being forsaken. It's not because the Father didn't love the Son. It's because the Father had to have justice. The only way for him to have justice was for Jesus, who was the only person that could pay the price. He was virgin born. That means sin hadn't passed into him. He was God. That means he had the ability to forgive sin. And he had to go to that cross and fulfill Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And for that moment, God's wrath came down on his son to the point where Jesus literally felt he was forsaken. Verse 28, John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be filled, said, I thirst. First, when he came to the cross, if we look at another narrative, it says they came up, and this was the, the common thing during a crucifixion. They would take a wine mixed with a, a basically a potion that if they took it, it would know, know some of the pain of the crucifixion. Jesus tasted it, would refuse to take it at that point. I'm not touching that. Jesus would feel the full effects of the crucifixion. But now his humanity is screaming out. 
His, his body is absolutely dehydrated. He can't barely breathe. His mouth is so dry he can barely uh, maneuver his face. He's facing death in moments. And he cries out, fulfilling Psalm 69, 21. Oh, Lord, I, I thirst. Can you imagine this horrible condition? He just wanted something, a swallow of water, something to help him. And they give him vinegar. Six saying, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Hebrews 9.14, Jesus offered up himself unblemished to God. He was the perfect Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tells us, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for me And for you, the Passover lamb has gone to the cross. This isn't like in Exodus when they took a lamb and they butchered it and put the blood around the post for the Jewish people to be saved from having their firstborn killed. This was Jesus Christ, God's son, going to the cross, having his blood ripped out of his body. This was Jesus, God's son, feeling the agony of separation from his father for a time. This is the agony of Jesus who is being tortured beyond belief. And his humanity is absolutely falling apart. Finally, Jesus says this, his final words. John chapter 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. To is the Greek word, to telestai, it is finished. And bowing his head, he, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit you can't take god's spirit you couldn't take his human spirit from him by the way god did not die the humanity of jesus his human body that did die you can't kill god but his human body definitely was destroyed but jesus said i am giving up my spirit The sin debt was paid, ladies and gentlemen, young people. Jesus went to the cross and paid the debt that you and I owe. John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes it, my life from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. We're going to skip through that and go to this. Folks, it's decision time. They take Jesus, they put him on that cross. He's dead. The payment has been made. The full satisfaction for God's wrath has been paid. What does that mean to you and me? It means, my dear friend, that Jesus, God's Son, did not come down and go to that horrific cross and suffer like he suffered for no reason. There was a very, very important reason. And folks, please listen to me as we close. 
Some of you out there right now, if you died this very moment, you have no clue if you'd get to heaven or not. You're hoping, you think, but you don't know. And Jesus went to that cross because he wants you to know. There is no one on this earth who should die without knowing for sure they're going to heaven. You say, that's preposterous. Most people don't know. On that we can agree. You're absolutely right. you know why? Because we've been told most of our lives that we got to do good to get to heaven. And Jesus said, that's not it. That's not how you get to heaven. What Jesus said is this. Jesus said, just like that thief on the cross, that robber on the cross, the robber said, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, you've rightly said so. Folks, you're a sinner. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, For by one man sin entered into the world. Adam, when he first sinned with Eve, for by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men because all of sin. Folks, when I was born, sin, I inherited the sin nature from my father, just like you. That's why Jesus was virgin born. He had no sin nature. And unfortunately, because I have the sin nature, God says, because I've sinned, and I've sinned for sure, just like you have, I'm sorry to say. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be unkind. But we're sinners. We, we sin because, quite frankly, in some ways, we can't help the, some of the things we do. We try, but we mess up. And God said, because I've sinned, if Rich Schmidt got what he deserved, I would go to hell and burn forever in an awful place called hell. That's what Rich Schmidt deserves. But guess what? Somebody showed me what I'm just telling you now. They showed me that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down from heaven, went on that cross, died for my sins. And they said this, what must I do to be saved? I wanted to know. Folks, I went to church for many years. I had no clue. I tried. I, I, I would try to be the best. I was a churchy guy. But I was bound for hell. You said, how can that be? Because it wasn't until finally as a teenager, that I went to a Bible study and somebody said, listen, you know all the facts. You know about Jesus. You know about his, his birth. You know about his death. You know about his resurrection. But you've never accepted his free gift. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they took me to the verses. Are you ready? Please don't leave. Listen, please. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, God's free unmerited gift, are you saved? It's through faith. It is not of ourselves. Nothing I could do. No wonder I was confused trying and didn't know. He said, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, Rich. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. You see what it's saying? Friend, please, please get what I'm saying. You could get coronavirus tonight. You could be gone in the next few days. Something else could take your life, and just like that, you're gone. Have you ever trusted Jesus as your personal Savior? You say, well, I believe in him. I know about No, 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 no. I'm saying, have you ever looked up to heaven and said, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. I believe that you came down from heaven, died on the cross for my sins, and I know I can't work my way to heaven because you made that very clear. I can't be good enough, never good enough. But your word said, if I would take your free gift, reach out and take Jesus into my life and trust in him that I could go to heaven when I die. Have you ever done that? Let's do it right this 
minute. Are you tired of doing it your own way? Are you ready to do it God's way? Right there. We're going to say a prayer in a moment. Are you ready to trust Christ tonight? Best decision I ever made in my life. It'll be the best one you've ever made. It's the best decision that robber made on the cross. Right there where you are. Would you please acknowledge you're a sinner to Jesus right now? Just tell him, I'm a sinner. I know I messed up. And Lord, I know. You tell him in your own words. I know that because I sinned, I, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I know that. But I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you came down from heaven, went to that cross, and died for me. And he did. And right now, Oh, God, I'm taking that free gift right here, right now. I'm taking that free gift for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish or go to hell but have everlasting life. Are you ready? Did you just tell it to him? You say, Brother Rich, I'm, I'm trusting Christ this very moment. I'm trusting Jesus right now. Oh, God bless you. Let's close this. If you've already done it in your heart, Let's just say a prayer confirming it. The prayer won't save you. Your faith is what saves you. But I want to lead you in a short prayer. If you're a Christian, would you pray with us, please, as some folks are trusting Christ this very moment. Let's pray with them as they invite the Lord Jesus into their life. Would you pray with me, please? doesn't matter if you're in church or not. You can get saved anywhere in the world. You don't need to be in a church building tonight. Right there, trust Christ. Would you pray with me in your own word or with me? You can pray silently. But just say it in your heart to the Lord. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I, I know that because I've sinned that I absolutely do not deserve to go to heaven. I understand that. But I also understand because the word of God said that Jesus, your son, came down from heaven, died on that cross for my sin. And oh my goodness, I know I've sinned and I'm sorry for those sins. And I'm right now I'm trusting the Lord Jesus and what he did on that cross. I'm taking him into my life. I'm trusting him. I'm taking the free gift of eternal life that you've given to me this very moment and trusting in you. Father, would you please seal all the decisions that are being made tonight. And we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, please look at me for just a moment before we're going to sing, a, have a little song before we go. But let me just encourage you with this. If you've just trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's the best thing you'll ever do. Here's what I'd like you to do. Can you do this for me, please? And do it to help yourself. Would you please go to myunionworldbaptist.com? My you'll see it on your screen if you haven't already seen it. Would you jot that down? Would you go to my Union Grove Baptist Church on the website, and would you please contact us and say, listen, I'm so happy. I've trusted Jesus as my personal Savior. And if you will do that, I promise you, I will send you some free of charge. And there's no obligation. I want to help you grow in your Christian life. Would you contact us, please? Let us help you. As our motto says, come grow with us. Stay tuned. Keep coming back. And one of these days, I hope to see you right here in our auditorium. God bless you. Thank you for being there tonight. I look forward to seeing you in heaven.